you are entering the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Rabbit Hole Podcast. The Rabbit Hole Podcast. Rabbit Hole Podcast. The Rabbit Hole Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one. Peace and blessings, everyone. This is Shane. And you are listening to the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Today we're going to actually have a wonderful subject, great topic to discuss. But first, we're going to go ahead and change up the uh, the, the mood, change up, trying to get everybody kind of hyped up. Um, I'm very excited about this particular session of the Rabbit Hole Podcast. So go ahead and check out this piece by the one and only KRS-One, the MC. If you like me, hip-hop is in your box. Who am I? The MC. When the jam is slow and you need a proceeder, who am I? The MC. When you need a lyrical leader with oratorical triple features, who am I? The MC. When you need to rock your 3,000 seat arena, best believer, who am I? The MC. When you need to get the word on the street with demeanor, who am I? The MC. I beg thee, let me splurt rhymes, I have plenty. Who am I? The MC. Lord of mercy, I hit Sutton like Percy. Always new like Jersey, stay thirsty. Who am I? The MC. Showing my authority, superiority, and artistic minority. Nice starting me, cause party philosophy can only be carried out by who am I? The MC. No doubt. Predicting far ahead what will set the party off immensely with plenty of food. The MC. Trains that rooftop red zone, Roxy and Bentley. Who am I? The MC. Gently move crowds with harmonious rhythm, cause the lyrics we give them, they miss them. Who am I? The MC. Again, the MC. Her infinite power helps oppress people sent me to tell you. If you truly study lyrical flow and stay on your toes, you will be who am I? The MC. And as an MC, you will study verbal magic, but watch what you say cause you'll attract it. Control your subconscious magnet from pulling and having. Who am I? The MC. Non-stop an MC, hip-hop an MC, verbal rockin', head knocking, quick drop an MC. I laugh cause I've mastered the craft MC. In sound class, I'm the first and last MC. It's sorta like Jim Carrey throwing that mask to me. I black out and wake up to catastrophe. Three MCs dead from the sound, blown out massively. Wow, who am I? The MC. Untouchable, can't be caught off guard with fast tracks or slow tracks. Ass cracks get waxed to the max. MCs pack raps for all tracks. Indigenous cultures, Asians, whites, and blacks never missed it. The linguistic of who am I? The MC. Mental, lyrical, poetic, mystic MC. Here is the voice of an ancient spirit MC. Premeditated worder. Killing negative concepts out the mind of the observer. MC. You deserve a break from counterfeits, frauds, and fakes. Claiming to be an MC for heaven's sake. Well, this MC done raise the stakes. Under the stress of KRS contracts and mental gaps are bound to break. Who am I? The MC. Again, the MC. Conduct yourself properly, MC.
that song right there was actually really relevant to this evening's uh, podcast session. I believe podcast session number 22. Yes, we are stacking them up. We are continually moving forward. We are recording great, great interviews tonight. We definitely have a treat for all of you who are listening tonight. So what is the rabbit hole? You are now entering the rabbit hole. Where would it lead? What's next and who knows, but follow me and let's explore together. What I can tell you is that we will explore the past, the current, and definitely the future. My name is Shane and I'm your host and welcome to the Rabbit Hole Podcast. The reason I wanted to start off with that song because in the hip-hop circles, KRS-One is known as the teacher, the master teacher. Whenever he gets on the mic, he are de- he's definitely spitting rhymes to inform, to encourage, to teach. And that leads into tonight's session for weeks. I've been thinking about how can I go ahead and do my next podcast. I want to do something a little different from my last, uh, which was actually a really good interview uh, with the, 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 the youngin, Captain C. He was talking to us about how we actually created his music. Um, so definitely look out for his piece, the Captain C Project. Um, but then also, I was thinking about after doing that, I met a, a individual a few years back, maybe, geez, the least, I want to say probably like seven, eight years ago, and uh, we befriended each other on social media, and I've seen that she's been promoting a book. So tonight is going to be our first book review. You know, I enjoy reading, and I know a lot of you all who are listening to the Rabbit Hole podcast, you guys are conscious thinkers. You enjoy educating yourselves. You enjoy, uh, you know, um, um, just reading and learning um, and and listening to people who have things to say. Let me tell you something. I haven't read a book since probably grad school that I really sat back and was like, you know what? This is interesting. It was very hard for me to actually put it down at times. Um, you know, of course, like all of us, we're very busy, but this is one of those situations where, you know what, I had to do homework before this particular podcast. I normally do research on a lot of my uh, guests that we interview, um, but this one I had to actually go a little bit deeper. She actually provided me a copy of her book and said, you know what, before we, before I get on the mic with you, Shane, I need you to go ahead and read this piece of information here. And then in addition, you know what? I need you to pay me 20 bucks for the book. You know what? No problem. We got that all day. We're going to support our people who support the rabbit hole podcast. 50 years of assimilation from the Midwest to the wild West and all the blackness and whiteness in between by Wanda Lee Stevens. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and welcome Wanda to the show. Wanda, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for Hello, how are you doing this evening? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you again for, uh, you know, being a guest on the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. No problem. No problem. So, you know, there there are a few reasons why I wanted to bring you on to the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Um, One is because I I think, uh, you know, in the past, I've had I've kind of put questions out on social media asking for resources, and you know a lot of those times you've always provided excellent 
resources. And and I, I think, you know, social media, that's probably, probably part of the, the power of social media is to share resources like that. And and so I was thinking that uh, then then also you sharing your resources and I've been following you along, I've been following along with you uh, regarding your book. And I was always curious, huh, what does it take to actually write a book? You know what? Wanda might know because she's actually, you know, promoting her book. So I wanted to bring you onto the Rabbit Hole podcast to, you know, talk about, you know, what it's like to actually come up with content, uh, what it's like to actually find someone who will uh, print it out and publish it for you. Um, and then, uh, you know, how you're actually marketing the book. So, uh, you know, how, how has it been so far with with your book, The 50 Years of the Simulation? Um, the process has been very rewarding. Uh, it was something that I said I would do a little over two years ago. Oh. And I kind of picked at it you know, monthly, initially in the beginning. And then I want to say last January, this past January, is when I decided, okay, I'm going to finish this book before the summer. And uh, I was able to fulfill on that. So within two years, you were able to write your entire book? Yes. Interesting, because you know what? As I was reading through it, I was like, you know what? How in the heck could she remember, you know, these, you know, types of situations? You know, I think, you know, for myself, you know, you kind of go through so much. And I think you're covering, like you said, like 50 years, right, from yep, these, yeah. these all the way up through the present. So you're actually recalling, uh, you know, uh, situations where you've been in when you're, you know, like in in middle school, going into high school. How, how, what? What? And even elementary, you're absolutely correct. What? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how did you? What did you have to actually do additional resource? What was that process like in recalling information from so long ago? Um, well, you know that Maya Angelou quote that she says you you never you might forget what people say, but you you don't forget how they make you feel. How they make you feel correct. Yes. And, and a lot of this the story is is things that happened to me that had me feel a certain way, very profoundly felt. So um, it wasn't hard to read specific stories. Some of the details I had to research, um, the timelines, because some of that began to morph over time. Right, and right. Then, and then other parts of it I actually called relatives to, to ask, you know, did that really happen? Did, was that just something I made up in my mind? I've been saying it for so long that now that I think it's real, did it really happen? And so... Mm-hmm. It was a combination of all of those things, my memories, the, the way I felt about it, what other people remembered about it, as well as, you know, you know, real research on the timelines. Nice, nice. So two years ago when you decided to write a book, was this something that you've been thinking about just like over the course of your life, or was it just something that, you know what, I want to set a goal for myself. I want to write a book and just do it. What prompted, you know, the the idea the concept of this book uh, fifty years of assimilation. Well, the idea of this book was because I felt there wasn't um, a black female narrative that was 
similar to my life being told um, in the media and in literature and in film. And um, I guess I didn't want to die with my song in me, and I thought my story was really relevant because uh, being born in the 60s and specifically in the year of the I Have a Dream speech, we were born into um, the conversation of free access, which was desegregation. And in my mind, desegregation essentially meant assimilation is what we had to do. They were like, okay, now the law says you can go and do whatever you want, and we were essentially the first generation out into the free world, quote, unquote. <laughs> and I thought it would be interesting to tell that story. What did it look like? You know, how how – how did it occur to the female? How did she respond to it? And um, between of just trying to chase freedom in within the societal confines of race. Right, right. And uh, you actually grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Born and raised. Um, actually, you, you know what? I have to say, some of the people that come out of the Midwest are probably some of the coolest people on earth my personal opinion. I would agree. <laughs> um, absolutely, without a doubt, right? Actually, um, a lot of my family, they're actually from a small city uh, in Michigan called mm-hmm. Saginaw, Michigan. I'm not sure if mm-hmm. you're familiar with that city, mm-hmm. but it's it's probably about, I want to say, about 90, 90 minutes north of Detroit. It normally takes me, whenever I drive back from Detroit to Saginaw, hour and a half, you know, doing a speed limit. Don't want to get caught out there uh, going over, you know, the speed limit. Never know what will happen. But, um, a, yeah. I don't know where exactly. I don't remember. Uh, but I know it's one of those suburban areas that we were not too not too uh, eager to visit. During yeah, it's, it's one of those um, industrialist ta- towns. Um, I know back in the, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, and even earlier than that, they're known for a lot of, um, you know, a lot of factories, um, a lot of industrialization around um, creating, uh, you know, the wood, a lot of wood mills, a lot of steel mm-hmm. mills, um, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. So you and I actually share that in common. Um, and I, I really thought that was very interesting because any time I, you know, get to read any hi- inter- information um, or historical information about Michigan, it really like piqued my perks, perks my interest a whole lot. Okay. So, what what was it like actually growing up in Detroit during the '60s for you? For me, um, it was pretty good. Um, I had those experiences that I had that kind of left an impact on me, but for the most part, um, I had a good childhood. And we we had our own family dramas that, you know, some very serious things that lost, you know, as you read of my parents without trying to give too much of the story away. But um, when the love was there, the love was there, and I was very protected by my family, by my mother, by my father, by my six brothers who all thought they were my father. Right, you came from a very big family. Nine kids, and I was a baby girl. So um, I had a very um, nourishing childhood, uh, but mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. impacted by some real harsh realities of life as well. Right, right. One thing that I, that really jumped out to me, um, you know, was the, the size of your family 
And then, you know, your mother was a stay-home, at-home mom while your father actually worked. You, I think what really I got a little chuck chuckle out of was he was like, you know what, I, I know I know he slept, but i never seen him sleep because either he was working or yeah. he was working. You know, there, he was right. working, you know, 16 to 20 hours per day providing for his family the best way he knew how. That's what he did, and he slept probably in the wee hours of the, the night or the early morning and when I was also asleep, so I don't remember him sleeping in our house. Right, right. Also, see here in, in your book, you actually recall uh, some of the you know experience of the the riots in Detroit during that time. Um, you know when mm-hmm. the National Guard came through the city. What was that experience like to actually you know actually be at a time where you kind of look at it right now where we can walk outside and, you know, walk up the street and not have a care in the world about things like that. But then you kind of look at it in, you know, other parts of the world with actual war zones where families, they're trying to do whatever they can to get, you know, to the other side and, you know, not be harmed. But what, what was that experience like in that time, actually having to live through something like that? Well, my memory of it is the memory of a five and a six year old, and so mm-hmm. it's it's more like a, an actual film than mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. the ex- experience, with the exception of the events that I wrote about, but the things mm-hmm. that were brought in from the outside. Mm-hmm. I'm still mm-hmm. trying to not tell much of the story. <laughs> I'm speaking in code, but okay. um, it and, and I was again very sheltered at that time, five and six years old. So so they kept me away from the harms of it as best they could, and I didn't mm-hmm. feel much of it uh, except feelings around the house of, you know, my older siblings and, and my the the fear and worry from my mom and dad about, you know, where was everybody and is everybody okay? Right, So it right. really, it, in my memory of a five- and a six-year-old, when that um, happened, uh, it was more like a film than an actual okay. experience, if it makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, one, one very interesting point about the book that I really, really enjoyed is, you know, the sections of the book. You know, you have uh, sections like the capture of the 1960s, the season of the 1970s, the labor of the 1980s, and the emancipation mm-hmm. of the 1990s. How, how do you actually, you know, come up with these actual, you know, titles of these sections? You know, when you were actually, you know, kind of developing the book, did they just come to you, you know, right off the bat? Was it something that you kind of wrote about? And as you were developing the book, they kind of, you know, came came, came out of the creation? Or tell us about that process. Um, so that was very interesting. I, that mm-hmm. wasn't first, obviously. As mm-hmm. I began writing the book, I just began writing what I remembered. Okay. Those episodes that impacted my life, um, very pivotal moments, and they all seem to um, center around race. And then when I looked back at the chapters and thought about who we were identified as as black people and looking at my birth certificate, having it being stamped Negro in 1963, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, knowing that that evolved to black, you know, in the 70s, and thereafter that, it was the Afro-American and then the African-American. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think I was 
either reading a book or hearing something about the middle passage from my daughter helping her with her homework studies and then I and it just kind of popped out at me. I'm like, wow, I could I could parallel um the sections of my book with the middle passage because it just it just seems to fit and as I, you know, sectioned each each part in it it it, it worked. And so I decided mm-hmm. to use that as a device to have that as the heading of my section. So it, it all just kind of flowed. It was, you know, a bit serendipitous, but it was pretty powerful when I put it all together and it worked. I was Absolutely. very pleased that, that I did that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like it also. I think it's, uh, you know, it's very creative and definitely have you thinking as you're actually reading through these uh, chapters and you're making that connection. Um, you know, I, I noticed with, you know, you start off each chapter with either some sort of saying or some kind of poem. Mm-hmm. How how did that come about? Well, I wanted to kind of, uh, as, as, as you're writing, I don't know if you've ever tried to write anything through writing, sometimes you just get these dreams, you know, that just flow and you don't quite know what to do with them. And it's like a stream of consciousness. You just start, you know, typing or, or writing if you're using pen and paper. And then um, sometimes it's useful and sometimes it's not. And um, a couple of times as I was writing this book, two or three of them kind of came. Um, you know, the stream just it just flowed. And I wanted to include it because it seemed to my, in my mind to capture the essence of each section. So I just wanted to make sure that I that I put it in there because, you know, you get to be creative and creatively expressive. You make right. sure. So um, I was just putting it all in, just having fun with it, really. Right, right. And, and that's what I definitely get from your, your work here is that, you know, there there's some serious sides of it, but it seems like you're really having fun with it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um. And that that's what I kind of I kind of like to I really enjoy enjoy the humor in it, but then also the historical references, um, and then also uh, with me it, it, it it's like it, it's, it's interesting to me because it's like you're kind of looking inside of the mind of Wanda of what she's thinking in each of these scenarios or situations that you kind of uh, detail throughout the book. And I was like, you know what? I'm really getting to know this individual. Like, I'm kind of making a connection here. As I was reading through it, um, that really caught my uh, my interest here. Like you said, you had grown, you had grew, you grew up right, you know, in you know during the I Have a Dream speech when Dr. King was definitely at the height of his popularity in the '60s, um, and it's like you're having conversation, like you're 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 asking Dr. King a question. And then you know, and then you you will you will provide, um, how, how should I say this? You know, you're 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 feeling, or you're asking them a question, or where you're kind of seeing, you know, 
kind of anticipating what his response to something would be. Mm-hmm. Talk, well, talk more about that, that connection with Dr. Martin Luther King. Julie. Well, I, I should, we should probably let the readers or the listeners know that the, the book is a series of letters um, dressed, addressed to Dr. Martin Luther King and, and the premise is to ask him, is this the vision? Is this what your dream was? Is this the way you thought it would pan out? And so I kind of take him along my journey and, and ask him every now and then in almost every section, is this what you saw? Yeah. Is this what you and, uh, and I'm sorry, your question was again. <laughs> no, 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 no. That was just that. I was just really curious about, you know, um, you, like you said, you were having a conversation with Dr. Dr. King and mm-hmm. you're kind of providing him, um, you know, kind of like your perspective of what's been happening in the world during certain periods of your time mm-hmm. and, and just asking them, like, did you really intend for this to happen? Was this really part of your dream? Um, I, I think one one thing, I knew that you had, we had talked a little earlier and you're like, you know, what? I don't know, there are so, so many parts of this. There was one piece in here when you actually really talked about assimilation. Mm-hmm. The whole book, of course, is about assimilation, but it was different perspectives of assimilating. Right. Jesus. Can you can you speak more about that here? Which section were you speaking of specifically? Now, when I believe it was probably my first black boss, and let's see uh, here. Let me follow that. Hold on here. I'll find it in one second here. Uh, 127. 127 was that one? Yeah, that's definitely the section. Hold on here. You know what? Uh, I'll find it and give back to you on that. But you know what? I think, no, this was it right here. Um, you know, when actually it was when you actually went to the concerts up in Chico and in Angels Camp, right? <laughs> that right, right. But 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 real, but more more deeply than that, of of feeling um, like you were invisible. Uh, yeah. Right, and and when and when I say I, I felt the connection, or I was like, you know what, you know. I connect with her because there's been situations where I kind of felt that same way. You're standing there, you're, you know, you're, 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 you know, obviously, um, you know, a different race than a lot of people who are the majority around you. And it's like, you know, no one want to, you know, uh, acknowledge that you're actually there. So can we talk about that a little bit that that was actually a, a funny story but i you know as you kind of read more into it it was just like ah, that, that kind of, that's kind of um you know kind of it's kind of hurtful a little bit yeah at the time it was because i'm in my 20s i'm new to california i have you know a first white roommate and i'm just trying to discover the world and right. get invited to this you know rock concert from a band that I've never purchased any music from, and I knew about one song from, you know, the, the Billboard Top 10 or 20, and uh, a ZZ Top concert, I'll, I'll, I'll get that right. Right, and right. And I was, 
I was really out of my element on so many levels that um, I was petrified, first off, that I was going to die. And obviously I didn't. Um, Are you you serious or is that just like you're like, yo, I'm going up here and it's about to be the end? (laughs) Because I was like... I was literally afraid for my life. I I knew that I would not live beyond that concert in that, in that moment. I just thought that that was gonna I was gonna meet my end there. I thought mm-hmm. you know that that was it. That I had done myself in. I went to some place that I didn't tell anybody about, and I didn't really know where I was going. And I just right, right. Have that California exploration and check it out, and um, it was very frightful and. Um, and and towards the end of it, as I calmed down and realized that nobody was thinking about me, <laughs> the hurtful mm-hmm. part that you mentioned was that, you know, in, in a crowd of 20,000 people, um, presumably half half of them men, how, how, could, how could that be that not a single one, you know, maybe the one guy that I mentioned, but out of 20,000, that's, that's insane. Um, so it was sobering, as I said, um, hmm. and 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 I did need a trip back home to feel better about myself. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, yeah. you, you know, at, at the end of each each session, I mean, you know, I've noticed like a pattern, and I think you know a lot of your readers they may have picked up on the same thing. Um, you know, there's there's this stereotype that you know, we have in our mind, but then after you actually go through it, you kind of realize that, you know, we're, we're all the same people. I know you, you kind of, you, you really talk about a lot of the, the times when you're in different environments and you're kind of looking at them, look at you trying to figure out, um, you know, what, what's really going on here. But then after the actual, uh, I guess, situation would occur, you know, um, you think, well, you know what, we're actually the same. Like the one situation where I guess, you know, the the summer cabin, mm-hmm. I really, really got a, I really enjoyed that chapter because um, I think sac, um, summers in Michigan, they're absolutely, absolutely beautiful. And to be able to go to a cabin on a lake in Michigan right. is right. even better. And you got to, you got to experience <laughs> this at a, at a, you know, at a younger age. Uh-huh. Talk about that a little bit. Um, so, so I was working for uh, the Bablo boat, and mm-hmm. those of us that are uh, older than than forty might know what that means. Or from the Midwest, uh, even from like Ohio and Indiana, because people came from various states around uh, Michigan to go to Bablo Island. It was an amusement mm-hmm. park, and. Mm-hmm. Um, it was owned by Canada and uh, or jointly owned by Canada and Michigan. And every summer from Memorial Day to Labor Day, you catch the ferry that would take you from the Detroit docks to the island called Bobble Island um, in the um, uh, Lake Erie. Yes. And uh, it took an hour and a half, and that was my first real peer-to-peer experience with whites um, because during the 60s and early 70s, Detroit was, for the most part for me, all black. 
assuming everyone I went to school with, with the, with an exception of a small percentage of teachers and a couple of students, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. most of the people I worked with, and um, my neighborhoods, everything. So this was the first real opportunity to spend, you know, quality time with whites of the same age who mm-hmm. were also pursuing the same goals in life and to really experience them versus watching the ones we saw on TV or, you know, and it was new, you know, we hadn't, none of my siblings had, had had that experience, you know, yet. And I was, you know, a little excited about the experience and, and actually befriended a couple of people or two or three of them. And then was invited to the cabin for a, a weekend party and, um, had a good time. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it, it, it sounded like you had a, a, a real good time. We don't want to give too much of the good stuff away, but right. uh, that was probably, you know, just kind of starting off reading. I was like, ah, I, I like that. I like that piece. And then at some point, you actually moved to California. So moving mm-hmm. to a a very, I guess you can say, a segregated, you know, it's either African American or Caucasians. I think in Detroit, there's the mm-hmm. the Greeks. There's, you know, there's other European type of um, ethnicities within Detroit. I'm not sure if it was like that back then. Right. Yeah, it's a large Italian community, a large Polish community, large Greek community, like you said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and then you're moving from there Mm -hmm. to California. How did you end up out here in the Golden State? Um, I actually followed my brother that's just over me. He and his wife had married the year before I moved out in 84. And in in 85, they had their first child, and he wanted me to come and watch her for the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the quickest conversation I had about moving in my entire life. It was like, when? <laughs> wow. And I had, my, I had my ticket in about a week, and, you know, it was on the plane a couple of weeks later. So it was it was uh, um it was a great thing. You, you know what? And that that did when I got to that part point of the book, it it didn't um, it didn't shock me at all. It, it seemed that I think you have a spirit of you know wanting to explore, wanting to learn, and wanting to see and touch and feel and things like that. So I was like, you know what? This 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 might be like this was like the the good, a good move for. Um, I'm sure yeah. back at that time, you know yeah. what what. One of my first times coming out to California when I was very young, um, you actually mentioned something a little different. But for, for me, coming from a small town of Saginaw, Michigan, which was either Caucasian, Hispanic, and then African-American, coming out here and just seeing all the different um, ethnicities and cultures, you know, like your Asian communities, uh, your Filipino communities, uh, mm-hmm. your uh, uh, Middle Eastern communities, your Indian communities, um, and then, of course, you have your Russian communities and then, you know, your small percentages of African-American communities. Uh, one thing I noticed off the bat was just the 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 amount of wealth that was around. I think what I used to do is go outside every day and actually count the, the Porsches and the Mercedes Benz. <laughs> what was that experience like for you when you first came to California? Well, I landed in Stockton, so there weren't a whole lot of Porsches around at that time. And then within a couple of months, we moved to um, Fairfield, so it was a military mm-hmm. town. So, again, mm-hmm. not a lot of Porsches and Mercedes around. But what, what was 
awestruck for me was the diversity right off the bat. Um, you know, Detroit was black and white, you know, and right. and having the diversity here and then starting to work like a month later after we moved um, from Stockton to Fairfield, I, I took a, a, a job at, at Macy's. Right in order to gain my residency so that I can go to school and pay in-state tuition, which is out-of-state tuition. Um, so I figured I'd work retail for a year just before that happened. And it was just so diverse, I had never even imagined the world could look like that in one, one location. Um, so that was the first thing. And then and that, that they all seemed so friendly, in, you know, initially. It, it was there was a lot of things um, that struck me that they were seemingly so open to me, you know, where I expected them to have a little resistance or, or here comes the black kid, you know, stance about them. I didn't experience that. And so right. that, that, that blew me away. Because so, you, so you expect, I was just saying, you coming from where I was, you expected to be rejected at, at first sight. And that didn't happen right away. Right, right. So, what what would what would your response actually be to something like that? You actually just explained that you would you had this kind of had this predetermined mindset of when you you know interact with someone of the opposite race, and then you know they kind of just you know kind of put that to the side and just take you for who you are, right? If you're you're working, you're you're cool, you're striking up conversation. How how did you actually how were you able to go ahead and switch that, I guess you can say, switch, switch that on and off instead of like having this kind of resistant type of thing where you're like, okay, well, I can be open too. Um, hmm, that's a good question. How was I able to? Well, I had had the experience at the cabin with my friends. On the bubble, so so that that kind of you learned you learned so much that weekend, huh? About life and everything, huh? <laughs> you can say that. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so that kind of helps a little, and then uh, just working with someone day to day, you kind of tweak them out, you know, a little bit more. You kind of you fill them out, and you can you can see their essence you know, easily because they're dealing with, you know, different people also all day long, so you kind of get a sense of who they are. Um, so it was easier to kind of let my guard down, I guess, quote-unquote, hmm. and just be me right. without, yeah, yeah. Let, let your guard down so much to the point where one of your first roommates was actually a Caucasian woman that you worked with, right? <laughs> Oh, that was funny. Um, <laughs> I went from one weekend hanging out with them, partying, into a, you know a longer term relationship by signing a lease with someone. Um, right. Well, that was, that was a big leap of faith, but she seemed okay. You know, she didn't seem to have any racial stuff about her. You know, that I could tell what what I right. was used to seeing and experience. And so, um, we were just two hardworking. 20 somethings trying to make our stakes as as adults in the world. So um it it, it, it worked out. I I think that um I learned a lot about suburban, you know, 20 somethings uh in in that era of time in the in the mid 80s. Uh and I'm sure she learned some things 
about African Americans as well. Um, we didn't actually part as friends, but we didn't part as enemies either. We just decided that we were a good match and went our separate ways. Mm-hmm. But it was never contentious. You know, it was never, it was just one of those, um, I don't know, how how would you describe it? It was an exploration, I guess. It, it, right. Really. Yeah. In, in, in that same same chapter, it actually has some that I actually highlighted here, if I, if I may. Can I just go ahead and read a little bit out of it? Sure. Okay. It's on page 55. It's like the second paragraph down. Dr. King, it was hard not to feel like something was wrong with me for not wanting to build a crystal clear future. Honestly, it was hard to reject many of these Eurocentric ideas and lifestyle choices because they represented freedom, affluence that we were told to go after. Um, I mean, how do you assimilate and be who you are? If you are fine by external trappings of another culture, material goods, and accomplishments that were systemized and predetermined without any input from their origins, how does a person find their own true freedom? How can you reject a system and coexist in it without compromising access and fair and equal treatments? Yeah. Yeah, I think even even back then that that really applies to today as well. Well, that's the million dollar question. That's what we're all asking. Yeah, as you said, still to this day, like how how do we get there? And that came at a time when when you know they were doing their things of of planning for weddings and dowries and things like that, and I just thought that was just the weirdest thing. And um, I I kind of understood it, but I didn't want to latch on to it, but it seemed like that was the way to do it, to to be successful and affluent and, you know, a bona fide American citizen. So um, I was real, really torn. I I felt like I didn't fit in. Like, that's Mm. not where I am right now. This is is your game. I'm not sure if I want to play it the way you're playing it. It doesn't quite make all the sense to me. Um, So I was just dancing with that. Right, right. And I think that's probably relevant to um, a lot of young people or or probably a lot of people who don't really have a true sense of, you know, identity of who they are. Right. I I would I would probably uh, presume that, you know, from that point to right now, you gain a better understanding and and with gaining that better understanding. What is that understanding now since you've actually kind of gone through you know, um, that period of time to right now to actually having your family and actually raising your own children? I think that um, in in looking back at this and having said that about it, I think if I were, um, like, God forbid, if something happened to me or my husband and my kids were left um, to fend for themselves at an early age, I would say, run, don't walk, like really run, don't walk to your closest historical or black college or university because um, you need that strong foundation in order not to succumb to things that aren't necessarily made with your best intent in mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, You know what I mean? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. 
foundation about who they are, where they came from, what is their history, their true history, not what, you know, some of these crazy text, textbooks are saying right now right. about, you know, the African workers coming over here. <laughs> they really need to really? know African the, workers? True, <laughs> the, true, the true history. And, and you're not going to get that out in the world. Right. And unless you're someone who is so self-guided that you will go and do self-study and research on your own, which most people need something in front of them to push them in that direction, um, then I would highly recommend any teen uh, from a broken home or um, or young adult from a broken home, African-American who does not know much about his or her history to run, don't walk to the nearest historically black college or university because I think you will be able to not only learn your history, but there's an element of nurturing that goes on from what I've been told. I have not attended one myself, but I have cousins that have, and they all talk about the same thing. And the one thing that they say is the nurturing that they receive Mm -hmm. helps Mm -hmm. give them a strong and solid foundation about who they are and then thus we're prepared to go out into the world Mm -hmm. and make their Mm -hmm. claims. Yeah. Right, right. We are talking to Wanda Lee Stevens. She is the author of the 50 Years of Simulation. And we're basically doing a talking about her, about, you know, her actually producing this particular book and, and actually talking about some of the stories within the book. We, you know, we don't want to go too deep because there's a lot of just great information in here. Um, another part of the book that I really enjoyed was actually the Yo Hablo Hispanol. That was actually a very interesting actually you were actually dropping some gems in that in that seriously in that chapter I feel where you kind of bring to light about budgeting and you know working with your money um within you know within the family um, and you kind of, kind of like have you kind of looking at it from the you know the outside in of seeing how another culture who who's pretty new to uh, you know America who's who's you know the minority as well and seeing how they're actually doing things different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was I I love that family. I still love that family. They um, really inspired me. Um, first, because they were a large family like mine. It was you know mom, dad, and six six children, and. Um, from what I was told, they they were all born in Mexico, and when the father came over here, he was able to secure employment at the railroad, Southern Pacific, I believe. And they all picked fruit in the summer uh, mm. as as a family. But he, their father, was a visionary. He, you know, just didn't want you know to work and for thirty or forty years and retire and buy one house. He wanted. Uh, he wanted his children to be landowners as well, and he had a plan, and he topped in the plan, and he executed the plan, and it was pretty powerful. Um, and I, I stated, you know, that I had not known any black or white family, for that matter, who had um, had acquired that much um, so quickly. Um, right, right, and, and just the way that it was done, there was a um, a, a, a very high level of respect for you know you know what the the wishes of the fathers w- were right um I, I think that <clears throat> if the young ladies they were not married and they worked right. they had to right. uh contribute a portion of their their salaries or their weekly earnings 
to the family fund. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of reminded me back of how uh, Barry Gordy, uh, actually, you know, the, the the creator of Motown Records, and his right. family, I believe his family was, was bankers, and I think how he opened up Motown Records was actually a loan from his family. And he, mm-hmm. and I think the letter is still actually in the Motown Museum in Detroit right now. Of you know, I get, let's just say hypothetically it was one hundred dollars, and he promised to pay it back with like ten percent interest. And right. I think on that same document, it actually showed that it was actually um, paid. So yeah. I thought that, thought that was very interesting. I'm just curious to know, um, you know, how is that family actually doing today? You know, uh, you know, a few decades later. Um, I actually haven't been in contact in uh, a good ten years, so mm-hmm. I don't know. But I, I would imagine they're doing fairly well. I, I would even imagine they survived the the Great Recession as well. <clears throat> um, just because of the things that I witnessed and how well they managed their money and how uh, frugal they were with it mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would think they're still doing as well. They they really understood economics, uh, and, yes. and 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 the older sister was a CPA too, so that kind of helped as well. Yeah, I'm quite sure that pops was like, you know, look, you're gonna go to uh, college and you're gonna learn about how to do this money, and I, uh, I think you know, just kind of assuming and kind of just picturing how that that household was ran, I'm sure they respected his wishes and went right right ahead for it. Yeah, post as well. I just because I didn't know grown people that listened to their fathers too much. Or you know, once once we turned eighteen, most of the people there were were so eager to move out of the house that there was no real interest in hearing anything more that mom and pops had to say about how to live because they just wanted to be free, you know, and grown and and doing the grown things, you know. But um, well, why do you think lot. that is, Wanda? You know, we're we're, we're parents at at this time, and you know, I I, I do look at cultures, um, you know, uh, uh, different ethnicities, and you know, kind of see their family dynamics, and then we look at you know cultures like ours or Caucasian. It, it, there is a difference. Why do you think that once you know some of our children, once they get of age, they can't wait to you know, move to California or, you know, run for the hills or go to Europe or just get the hell out of the house? Why is that? <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, do we have enough time for that conversation? Say, exactly. I've I witnessed various things. In, in, in my house, you know, as I mentioned, the parents died. So, so me, I, I think I was just running away from the pain. Like yeah. I, I needed to be somewhere else where there wasn't so many painful memories, even though there were the good memories right alongside of it. Uh, but I just wanted to venture out, and, and 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 in my case, also I had six brothers, and five of them were older, so they always, almost always, tried to tell me what to do. So I really needed to distance myself from that. Mm. Um, no, no. When you say like, there is, was there a difference? Be be be. You know, between uh, I guess you can say the character Nora in your book versus your brother, her parents actually kind of having like a goal in mind, right? So they're telling them, okay, we have this master plan, you can follow it like this, right? Telling them what to do on that level versus your brother's telling you what to do. 
Was there like any kind of goal in mind? Was it just trying to be just be this authoritative figure over you and just run your life, or was there a difference? Uh, I guess from those well, each, each brother had a different uh, agenda, I think, and and my, the actual brother that died was the was the main one who was more visionary, I guess, than the I rest because his his whole thing was you're going to college, you're going to college, you you know you got right. to get your education first, don't worry about those boys, yada yada nice. yada. Um, but the, the most of them were, were just behavioral, you know, mm. um, orders like don't go outside or don't you know don't come home after the street lights or don't go you know to this person's house or that person's house so don't follow me don't come with my friends you know that kind of thing. Right. You didn't do that. It was there was no real vision. No one said, unfortunately, let's you know pool our money and buy anything, you know, we didn't have those conversations. Even though we had, uh, we were heirs to Timberland and oil property down in Alabama, but we didn't find out about uh, really the early 2000s. Mm. And it's still there, but it's air property and it's probably about 50 heirs now. When we found out about it, there was 41 heirs and, you know, cousins spread out across the country, so it's kind of difficult to um, navigate that and, and pool everyone together and everybody has their own plans for what it should be, so it's kind of interesting. Here, here's another poem that uh, I really liked here. I, too, I, too, mm-hmm. sing America. I am the darker brother. I send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, company comes but I laugh but I and eat well, well. And grow strong. Tomorrow I will be at the table. When company comes, nobody'll dare say to me, "Eat in the kitchen." Then, besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too am America, by Langston Hughes. Yeah. I had to learn that in the sixth grade, and by for Mrs. Allen's English class. Wow. Just elementary. Never forgot yeah. it. So, you know, as we, we you know, I, I can go on. I, I really read through this and I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I can talk to you. Let me ask you, what was your favorite part about writing this book? I think all writers would say getting it done would be the favorite part, but no. Um <laughs> Well, I have actually I have a lot of favorite sections because I think I I reach some very profound moments in the book that I didn't know was going to happen when I started writing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, but the chapters that I think are are, are more telling, um, I really like. There goes the white neighbors that chapter. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, I, re- I really love Fifty Shades of Black. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love I See White People. You mentioned that. That's the Pablo um, chapter. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually like Twenty Thousand White People and Me as well. I really like that one because it, it, it's it's a comedy and a tragedy at the same time. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. as well as Yo Hablo Español. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that was a very telling chapter. And Happy Black Housewives was very telling as well. That was that that was something that really um, stuck with me for till this day, actually. Hmm. Um, How so? Because it was so interesting. Um, the housewives, these the three housewives that I feature um, in the chapter, they were just happy and happy most of the time. Like I, I, I don't think I heard too many terse words come, or any, you know, come from any of their mouths. And I spent quite a bit of time. I was there for six years, so I and I would see them weekly, so I got to know them pretty well. And I was just really blown away because at home, not to say that mother and your housewives in the neighborhood weren't happy, but there was an air of, um, like, they were kind of sullen and they seemed to be worried about life more than right. the women did. They were, you know, they were either worried about bills or, you know, what was going to be, how were they going to get sued or, um, if their husbands were coming home, if they were going to, you know, see them that night, is there was always some something going on with them that cast an air of worry or, or um, I don't know, just there, there just wasn't a present ever present joy. They would have moments of joy and bouts of joy when you know funny things happen, but I didn't see it demonstrated any basis like I did here. So that's that's just stood out to me. It was just night and day almost, you know. Um, Wait, would I, you? I you know, as you as you actually kind of described the two, you know, di- different individuals, um, you, you said something that's very uh, interesting. Like you said, the one group of women or your neighbors back in Detroit, they have to worry about food, water, you know, what what's going on, um, security. And the first thing that came to mind was Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm. versus the, the the happy housewives out here. It, it right. appeared that they that they had the food, the water, you know, they were sleeping good, you know, they had the security of probably you know having you know, either their husbands or themselves being gainfully employed. They have resources, good friends, right. uh, great great self esteem. Right. So. Uh, that, that's one thing that I, I really picked up out of that that chapter as well. Um, no, but most of these women at home as well. They, a lot of the women in Detroit that we were there was they were dual income um, families. Mm-hmm. I think my mm-hmm. my mom and the neighbor next door were the only two widows on our block. But right. most of the other and there were a couple of women that were actual housewives. But I would say. Sixty percent of them worked. They had and and good jobs. You know what we call good government jobs, post office or 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 the city of Detroit, or some of them factories as well. So there was not a shortage of money. I mean, they were dual income, and everybody on our block owned their houses. I don't remember one single renter at all. And um, so it was a bona fide middle class area. There was just. I don't know. It was like maybe it was the state of black America in Detroit versus California, or maybe it was because the housewives in California were military housewives. Uh, I I can't say what the difference was. Yeah. (laughs) Right, right. It was was enough for me to notice. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I I picked up a few other... uh, 
points of your book here, where you actually wrote a letter to our, our, our president, uh, Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Very, very curious. Was this was as you were actually kind of writing down everything? Did this come? at the beginning, towards the end? At what point, as you're actually kind of uh, writing your book, did that piece come up? Mm, it actually came towards the end, and it was almost like, okay, now you've told all these stories, now what? What, yes. what, do, we, what do we do with them? And I think my editor may have posed that question to me. Um, and I said, now people need to know what to do. <laughs> and so, and uh, I can't recall the exact moment or that I, you know, formulated the idea of, okay, address letters now to the president and to black people and to white people and to everybody else and tell them what you think. Um, I can't remember the moment that that uh, unfolded, but Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. seems like it was the right thing to do. Now, after reading this book, and I'm sure you you sound like you've been talking about it quite a bit, and and I can tell that you're you're very passionate and excited about your your piece of work here, and I'm very excited for you. Um, how can we or or should we really assimilate into the dominant culture here within America? So the the. <laughs> Wow, the operative word there is dominant culture. I mean, that changes every day, right? It's, or it's on its way to be changed. So I don't, I don't think that there's a, necessity, a need to assimilate, per se, mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think the greater need is to just make your claim about who you are and, and what you want and then yes. go for it and... Um, yeah, assimilating at this point is is a, not a win-win situation at all. I'd say it's a win-lose situation because you literally lose yourself. Um, so when you say um, stake your claim and go for it, right, give us an example of how you would go for it. Say if I'm, you know, if I, knowing what you know now, you know, uh, a 20-year-old wanted to come into California how how would you change things now? Coming to California, mirror, actually, okay. it would mirror a little bit like the the Mexican family, quite honestly. Yes. Um, uh, with the family working to build, you know, a nation amongst themselves, right? Yes. Uh, uh, people that support each other and nurture each other and uh, build upon, you know where you start, like you start where you are, and you build upon it with the people closest to you, and you expand out. So, is that how you actually run your family today? Where you're 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 pooling resources, you're you're definitely educating your your children and yourselves about your own history and things like that. Absolutely, we're all in. Um, we're uh, raising our kids to be independent thinkers, to be entrepreneurial, um, and to be visionaries, hopefully, and leaders as well. Um, and they're starting to, you know, peak a little bit in some of those areas. So I'm feeling like I'm on the right path with them. Absolutely. And I can tell that you definitely are. For those who are listening, who who is thinking, well, how can I teach my kid to be entrepreneurial? How can I teach them to be independent? How can I 
teach them to be motivated about learning about themselves. What suggestions would you give to them? Let's watch their children. Look at them. See what their interests are. Um, My daughter in the fourth grade um, learned how to do origami, and she decided she was going to sell them to her classmates because they kept asking her to make some for them, and she figured she was spending a lot of time on it that she might as well make some money, and she actually sold quite a few of them for a quarter and 50 cents and a dollar in the fourth grade, so I guess she was, what, eight or nine um, Mm -hmm. at the time. And and, um, they thought of other ideas that they've had, and we've tried to support them and let them get out there and do their thing and and run it. And she's teaching piano right now. She's She's been playing piano for the last seven years. Mm. And um, she's teaching little girls in the neighborhood right now. Uh, private lessons, so she she's got the spirit right now, and my son is just starting to blossom in that area as well. So I'm very excited for them both. So so most importantly, it's it's basically the support, right? Your your kid comes up with an idea instead of kind of shooting it down. You know, you're like, okay, let's go ahead and explore that. Let, let, let's see. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. So that that's definitely. The position to take. Um, I remember myself growing up uh, with my father, for example. Uh, <clears throat> I used to really enjoy playing a trumpet, um, and then one day I was like, you know what? I want to hear that crap. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about you know having a, you know if you're if you're a young person and you really enjoy you know music and, and you're, you're you're trying different notes and then have someone in the household to be like, you know what? That sounds whack. It sounds like crap. Don't play that. You know, I'm trying to get some rest or that's enough of that mess in there, you know, for them to get angry with you for for playing. I think that that's kind of like one of those, uh, I guess you could say, passion killers if you're a young (laughs) person. So so it's definitely important to support your kids and, you know, what they like to do. Right. Because it's, it's really their lives that they have to live and 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 they want to uh, be passionate about a certain hobby, encourage them and support them as best you could would, would probably be the message that I got from what you just said. Yeah, I mean, we're we're in the age of, of creativity, you know, information age and creativity is part of that. And uh, it's almost anything can be a business these days, as we're witnessing with the advent of the Internet, how quickly, you know, People can make money doing almost anything, uh, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. definitely support them um, and, and see where it takes them. You know, like help them think like a businessman, woman. Now, <laughs> now, uh, from a cultural standpoint, you know, how could we, how can we support our children in in identifying uh, with their roots, with their culture? You know, being in this, you know, type of environment that we're in. Ooh, that's um, hmm. So my son is 13 and um, he's getting taller, and he's he's getting to the to the age of you know where people may see him now and not see a cute little boy, but a, a threatening young man just by standing up and and being brown. So it's it's a, it's a real difficult time for black boys and men right now in in our country. Um, sad to say, but um, 
I don't have the answer to that right now. I'm, I'm just as guarded as every other African-American parent of a boy and girls. I shouldn't even say just a boy um, right now. It's, it's something that, unfortunately, we have to be very diligent about um, teaching them, I guess, code and teaching them, you know, some of the pitfalls and teaching them how to navigate themselves in society um, to have, you know, as much freedom as they deserve and should have as American citizens, mm-hmm. uh, but how to keep them safe because you, you don't want them um, harmed in any way just because of who they are. And Right. I, yeah, and my husband and I talk about it quite a bit, but we we just don't know because crazy things are happening for various reasons, so it's hard to say do this not that, when the thing that you tell them to do could be the thing that threatens them the most. So it's very difficult right now. We're 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 at a place that, you know, I, I don't even know how to articulate where we are. It's 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 scary. It's uh. Yeah, it yeah. Very, it feels very southern. It feels very. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I think uh, I think you're you're definitely on to something, and you know, I, you know, we we have teenage boys, a teenage boy, as well as a you know a 21 year old, and we worry quite a bit. Um, but I, I think the message that we uh, you know give to our our kids, uh, well, you know, to my kids, is you know is to let them know that they're always loved, right? And then also, um, you know, let them let them know about the realities um, and just kind of priming them. Like you said, you said, you know, understanding, you know, kind of code switching, um, but then also being very conscious of their surroundings. Right. Right. If there's right, trouble, right. don't run to the trouble. Um, if there if there's an issue, you know, the first thing to do is to go ahead and, um, you know, comply, be respectful at all times. Um, and, you know, always ask for a lawyer. Um, so, so besides that, you know, I I think these boys, they really need to get out into a world to explore for themselves, Mm -hmm. but then we are from our teachings at home to really ground them, um, and, and having respect for themselves, having respect for, for their sisters, um, having respect for, you know, members of their family, especially, uh, members of their community and things like that. And, and get yourself, get themselves involved in, you know, community activities or a passion that they have. So to keep them um, engaged, and and I guess you can probably say, um, out out of the line, line of fire in, in a yeah. lot of ways. I think. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, getting back to your book, um, what's next? Now, now that you wrote fifty years of assimilation, you, you know, it's been two years. You you completed. One book, you know, what's next for Wanda? It's still relevant and the masses haven't heard about it yet, so I'm just working on getting the word out and this podcast is helping. Thank you for that. Um, I've, I've got a couple of uh, scheduled uh, events that I would like to talk about. One specifically right now, if I may. Okay, uh, absolutely. I will, I will be doing a reading on Monday, November 9th, 
from 6.30 to 8.30 at the Impact Hub in Oakland. Awesome place. That's at 2323 Broadway. It's a free event, and we'd love to see uh, some of your uh, listeners there to come hear more about the book, and I would actually be doing a reading there as well, as well as having conversations about it. Um and then I have a couple of other events scheduled for the African American History Museum in Oakland. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I'm doing a workshop at the White Symposium, or the White Privilege Symposium, excuse me, on November 13th and 14th uh, in in the Bay as well. The White so, Privilege uh, Symposium, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's a gathering of whites to and other people as well, not just whites. But to come and understand uh, how unconscious and implicit biases live and and what they can do about it. Mm. And I'm I'm uh, doing a couple of workshops. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Good, good. So, you know, let's take it back to one of my original questions, Wanda. You know, what what do you have to do to actually get a book published, right? You came up with an idea, you started writing. What what happens next after all that? Can you kind of walk us through for, you know, a listener out there who who has a great idea, who's a great writer or who may not be a great writer but they're but they they want to put out a book. How can a person actually get started in actually um, you know, developing a book and then actually producing it and actually having a hard copy in their hand? Well, writing is 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 not a solitary uh, solitary confinement. It's something that you're going to have a have to have a team to do. Um, you'll have the idea and you'll have the story in your mind, and you'll need to you know flush it out. But once you do that and you get it um, somewhat edited in uh, pre- presentation form, your manuscript, you're you're going to want to hire yourself a professional editor. Um, do not. Um, publish a book without getting a professional editor to review it for you, even if you are an editor yourself who's writing the book, because um, you have blind spots. There's things you will not see. Um, the first time, the second time, and the third time, there's things you will not see. So mm-hmm. I highly, highly recommend that if you're doing it on your own, which is what I did. I, I, I self-published. Um, I have a small publishing company. And I published it under my publishing company. I did not go the route of submitting my manuscript to various agents and publishers just because I wanted to test out the Amazon system. And uh, so far, I'm pleased. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. on. Stop right there. Back Mm -hmm. up a little bit. You just said something Mm -hmm. very key. I don't think a lot of – I know what you're talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. But go ahead and um, describe or provide more detail on the Amazon System. Well, they've kind of leveled the playing field in terms of making your book available um, to the and public. And you're talking about through Amazon.com, right? Amazon.com, which is where my book is right now, for those of you that are still listening. Um, it's, uh, you can use their service, which is called Create Space, and um, publish your book yourself, but again, you will need other people to assist you with design of the book and you know the editing of the book and the layout of the book itself and the trim size that you decide to pick you know you really need um assistance from people that have that expertise expertise 
Um, but you can, you know, sign up and um, without trying to oversimplify it and make it sound so easy. Um, it takes some work, but it's worth it and, and it and it becomes easy after you've done it a couple of times. So, um, createspace.com, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you you create an account, and you load your document, and you get approved. You select what size you want, and you also have to buy your ISBN numbers and, you know, do the cover design and the back cover design and sign design, all those things. Um, but they have a lot of tools that will assist you in that process as well. It's very time-consuming initially, but, again, once you – we do it, you know, a few times. You, you kind of learn the ropes, and you're able to get through the transition a little faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the the big picture, though, is, is the marketing. That's the big, you know, the big nugget that you really have to tackle and figure out how to get the word out about your book. You'll run out of friends and family in the first couple of months, and then you'll need to get to the, <laughs> you know, the, the public, right? <laughs> you know, that's funny that you said that because – as I was coming up with my podcast, I had to hit all my friends and family. Now, now we're just getting, you know, <laughs> new people now. So, no, that that right. that's right. You know, get your family yeah. to support you. Get all yeah. your closest friends to support you, and then yeah. you know, more people will come. Guaranteed. Yeah. You got to put it out there it, in the universe. It is, yeah, and they have programs that you can you can you know depends on what your budget is and how much money you have. You can by, you know, advertising um, uh, folks to help you market the book. You can, you know, pay as you go. If you sell a few, you, you you can put it right back out there into the marketing aspect and see how many more people you can reach that way. There's various things you can do. Um, you can come on the Rabbit Hole podcast, and we'll go ahead and talk about your book. On the Rabbit Hole podcast, you can Very happily. <laughs> so yeah, the, go to the your key, local libraries and market it. There's a whole lot of things um, that you can do. And, and that's the importance of the ISBN, right? Because if you want to market at your libraries or at schools, you got to have the ISBN number, or you, I think you can also register it with the Library of Congress as well. That's correct. Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the key, yeah, that's key. You, you, it's not a really a legitimate book until you have an ISBN number, so you don't want to publish it without that. Right, right. So the keys here of you know getting a book published here is of course write, 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 edit, edit, edit. Have someone else review your work, uh, possibly a professional editor. Um, right. And then also from that, um, if you want to go ahead and actually publish yourself. Want to actually just drop the major jewel right here? Have you know? Do you want to go ahead and control the ownership, control your own stuff, and get it out there in a very professional format? Go ahead and go to a um, service that she used, Amazon.com. They actually have a, um, I guess it's like a, 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 a company within Amazon called Creatus, CreateSpace.com, and basically what they'll do is they'll go ahead and format it. You gotta actually have your uh, manuscript um, digitized, probably like in a PDF formatted file, so that you can upload it to their website, so that they can go ahead and format it for you. I think they have, uh, you know, specs for their uh, formats. And then also, Uh you need to also get an ISBN number, which is like she just said, it won't be a legitimate book without that ISBN number. Um, And then also. 
um, the Library of Congress as well. That's a, a different, uh, another type of, is that a number or a, a code that they it's put a, on your book? It's a, it's a filing, it's copyright protection. Yes. Yeah, you, you file the book with the Library of Congress. Right. And then once you have all that done, then you can go ahead and get that first hard copy. And, you, of course, you have to figure out how much you have to charge for it, right? Um, yes, and then you know, figure out, come up with a plan of how you're going to market it. You can, of course, use social media. And I believe through Amazon.com, once you actually publish your book through them, it's uh, you can get it. Uh, you know, you can get elect electronical copy of it as well. Yeah. So you go on your Kindle or your iPad and so on and so forth. Um, and then after all that is in, it can, yes, yes. And then you can market, market, market. You can come on the Rabbit Hole podcast. You can go ahead and do workshops all around wherever you can get get in. Get yourself, uh, you know, um, in there and always carry yourself a copy. And you'll never guess where I bought my copy of the uh, of. The 50 years of assimilation. <laughs> That's right. Where all of the politics go down in our community. Yes, the barbershop. That's the barbershop. That's the barbershop. That's where I pick my coffee up. With my son and husband. That's funny. Yeah. Yes. I think that's yes. The first I, yeah, that's the first one I sold at the barbershop. Actually, I sold two that day. And the the right. barber bought one as well. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. All right, so how how can folks get in contact with you? If they want to go ahead and, you know, have you come do a book reading or present on, you know, your your, your book or your ideas, um, you know, how can people reach you? Um, real easy. There's two ways. First way is a direct call, and that number is, 888-444-7552. That's the first way I repeat it. 888-444-7552. For email. Now when they call this number, what, who, who are they reaching? They're reaching they're you? Reaching, yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Through through Green Global, they're reaching me. Yes. Green Global okay. Publishing is my, my publishing company. Wonderful. Or they can email me at 50 years, five zero years, at Sasa Books. And Sasa is S-A-S-A books.com. How about social media? Facebook slash 50 years of assimilation. And on Twitter, I'm 50 years WLS. Okay, for some reason we broke up there uh oh, for W okay. so that so that's Twitter dot com forward slash fifty years W L S Wanda Lee yes. Stevens. Wanda Lee Stevens, right. Do you have do you have a website? I'm working on WandaLeeStevens dot com. It should be up by next week. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So Wanda, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very thank much you. for spending this time with us. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, I have many thank pages you. through it. You can definitely tell that it's been read. Got a lot of dog-eared uh, pages here. Got a lot of writing here, as I was thinking, um, kind of taking that journey along with you. Um, so. Can I you know, ask what, you a question? Absolutely. 
what was your your biggest or top two takeaways from the book? Um, well, my, one of my takeaways was definitely that um, we're all alike in a lot of ways. I, I think, um, you know, I think when you like at the very beginning of the book where you kind of talked about um, the household um, and uh-huh. then how, um, you know, living, you know, living in a household with all your brothers. Right. And right. And, and, and learning how to adapt between them and their friends. And then you kind of see, you know, your friends in your neighborhood, then you go to school. And then although, you're, you know, there's two different neighborhoods or whatever, you kind of see the similarities between the two um, environments. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. a- another takeaway was um, probably the story about Nora and her family. Um, mm-hmm. That was probably one of my where I was just like, you know what, this is some good knowledge right here. Because I think when you, you know, for myself, when I, you know, I, I talk to different cultures i'm always curious you know um about them and and how how they're doing you know good things within their families right if they're mm-hmm. coming from another country uh where you know they're you know when when you say poor they're really really poor <clears throat> like you know coming from different caste systems or whatever the case is but somehow they made their way into america and they've been able to actually thrive so i'm always curious to know how did they do it? What was their keys right. to success? Yeah. And I yeah. think through that 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 chapter with Nora, that was um, one that I was like, you know what? That that was actually a very great example. The household, they they had rules, they had an understanding, and the father, you know, he had this idea and he had this vision. And his mm-hmm. family, his wife and his daughters, and I believe you said he has sons as well, they all bought into that. And because all mm-hmm. of them bought into that, they are all better off than, you know, his father, probably their father was, um, you know, back in Mexico or where they, wherever they were from. So right. those were what I took, took from it. And, and throughout the entire book, I did definitely notice themes that, you know, we, we are – we, although we're different, we're all very much the same. Uh, we all kind of experience things the exact same way, but we all right. learn le- differences, um, learn uh, our lessons different um, from from one another. But we're all basically the same. I really, really enjoyed your book. Um, I want you to continue writing, writing, writing. When you yes. create your second book, mm-hmm. definitely come back to the Rabbit Hole podcast. Um, uh, you're always welcome here and, um, you know, hopefully I answered your question there. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. All right, Wanda. Thank you for the opportunity and hello to your listeners and check me out on Amazon, y'all. Definitely. Check her out and buy her book. Buy, buy this book and whenever you see her out in the community, she always going to have a copy on you, right, Wanda? Oh, absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, you have a good evening, and we'll talk to you later on. Thank you, Shane. All right. Peace. Bye-bye. Good night. All right. Thank you all for listening to the Rabbit Hole Podcast. It was a stone-cold pleasure of talking to Wanda about her book, her great creation, and that was definitely, um, this is probably one of my favorite podcast where I had to actually do homework and 
read and actually talk to a person about their life, about their 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 writing, about their creation, which I think is so cool. And then also share some information with you all about how to get your your life, uh, you know, get your stories out to the public, um, because all of us do have a story. And we are all very interesting peoples once we start pulling back those those layers. And um, tonight was definitely a great podcast, I believe, here. So if you want to reach me, you can definitely reach me on Blog Talk Radio forward slash Rabbit Hole Podcast. We also have a Facebook uh, group called the Rabbit Hole Podcast, and you can always reach me directly at Shane at ShaneHair.net. Until next time, be curious of life and always discover new experience, experiences and envision yourself in the future. You are listening to the Rabbit Hole Podcast. If you like me, hip-hop is in your box. Who am I, the MC? When the jam is slow and you need a proceeder, who am I, the MC? When you need a lyrical leader with oratorical triple features, who am I, the MC? When you need to rock your 3000 seat arena, best believer, who am I, the MC? When you need to get the word on the street with demeanor, who am I, the MC? I beg thee, let me splurt rhymes, I have plenty. Who am I, the MC? Lord of mercy, I hit Sutton like Percy. Always new like Jersey, stay thirsty. Who am I, the MC? Showing my authority, superiority, and artistic minority. Nice starting me, cause party philosophy can only be carried out by who am I, the MC? No doubt. Predicting far ahead what will set the party off immensely with plenty of who, the MC? Trains that rooftop red zone, Roxy and Bentley. Who am I, the MC? Gently move crowds with harmonious rhythm, cause the lyrics we give them, they miss them. Who am I, the MC? Again, the MC. Her infinite power helps oppress people sent me to tell you. If you truly study lyrical flow and stay on your toes, you will be who am I, the MC. And as an MC, you will study verbal magic, but watch what you say, cause you'll attract it. Control your subconscious magnet from pulling in havoc. Who am I, the MC? Non-stop an MC, hip-hop an MC, verbal rockin', head knockin', quick drop an MC. I laugh cause I've mastered the craft MC. In sound class, I'm the first and last MC. It's sorta like Jim Carrey throwing that mask. You are entering the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Rabbit Hole Podcast. The Rabbit Hole Podcast. Rabbit Hole Podcast. The Rabbit Hole Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one.